Howdy, you're listening to the Think Brasses podcast. We're dedicated to improving housing affordability, economic opportunity, and financial resiliency for families in Bryan and College Station, Texas. It's been a while since we published anything. That's because our family moved out of our home for some major repairs and now we're moving back in. In the midst of all that mess, we're excited to bring you an interview with our congressman. In this episode, Charlie and I sit down with Representative Pete Sessions to get his view on a few things. We ask him about the Boy Scouts, infrastructure negotiations, the housing market, the foreclosure and eviction moratoriums, and even the upcoming redistricting process in Texas. Congressman Sessions, thank you so much for, for coming on Think Brothers. It's a real pleasure to be on with you. Uh, I've had uh, very dear friends for years who've been associated with Habitat for Humanity. Uh, got an umbrella that I occasionally uh, keep that they passed out uh, at one of the events I went through a couple of years ago and find it uh, very important. It's important that we care about people who uh, need housing, cannot have housing. There's not enough housing. Uh, we need to be there for families. We need to be there for disabled people. And we need to be there for seniors also. The uh, My church that I previously belonged to was number one in the country in building uh, homes for Habitat. Uh, really? United Highland Park United Methodist Church in Dallas, Texas. I and so my, my son... My son received his Eagle uh, Scout Award uh, uh, off doing a project that was for uh, Carpenters for Christ, which was the uh, the uh, Highland Park United Methodist Church equivalent. It was those Carpenters for Christ that went built all those homes for humanity in Dallas, Texas. And he did his Scout uh, Eagle project there. Uh, working upstairs and uh, making it a better place for people. So I've been associated with uh, Homes for Habitat for a long time. That is awesome. Well, thank you so much for your service. And that's really cool to hear about your son as well. I actually wanted to, before we start talking about housing and a few other things, I did want to ask you a little more about your experience with Boy Scouts. You mentioned your son was an Eagle Scout, but I've heard that you're very involved to this day with the Boy Scouts. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing with them and how you got involved with Boy Scouts? Yes, sir. Well, I got involved. My grandfather uh, Dr. Will A. Sessions wrote the God and Country Award in 1947 uh, for the National Boy Scouts of America. Uh, and this, uh, it's the top religious award. God and Country Award is the re- highest religious award that can be offered in scouting. Wow. Uh, he wrote it for the Christian faith. Uh, and it's, uh, so I grew up knowing my grandfather wrote this for the Boy Scouts. My dad's an Eagle Scout. Um and uh, received his Eagle Scout Award in 1947. I received mine in 1970. Then I've got two boys uh, that both received their Eagle Scout Award. Uh, <laughs> Alex, the last one, in about 2010, and I think Bill was 2005. Uh, and they're they're both Eagle Scouts. Uh, both fine young men scouting uh, is which I've been a part of since 1964. Uh, and it is an important part of my life. I'm an Eagle Scout. I serve on the national Eagle Scout committee. There are about 10 of us that serve on that committee. Uh, 
Uh, we're responsible for the activities of the Eagle Scout Association as a part of the Boy uh, Boy Scouts or Scouting of America. In particular, um, I've, I've helped us. I got us uh, work to get us a stamp uh, that we got years ago. Uh, by the way, George W. Bush is former president, really, maybe he was president, but really helped us and got a gold coin, uh, which was actually a silver coin, but it's a minted coin that comes out of the uh, mint. And it was on our hundredth anniversary. And uh, then I have been a part of making sure uh, that I'm a part of the leadership. I'm a long-term person on, on, for our Order of the Arrow, okay. uh, which is our honored service and also our service called Wood Badge, whereby we tra- train the next generation of adults to be prepared. Lastly, uh, we're a part of making sure girls are a part of our program. This yeah. last Sunday in Waco, Texas, the first two girl Eagle Scouts in McLennan County. We presented them with their Eagle Scout Award. The president of Baylor University, Dr. Linda Livingstone, and I were there, and it was a grand uh, opportunity to celebrate uh, Eagle Scout Award for these two girls. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you for your involvement. I know the the organization as a whole has a huge uh, impact on our whole country, Uh, so thank you for that. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Whitney. I haven't really introduced her yet. My wife, Whitney, who has some questions, a little more about housing and things that impact habitat. So here you go. Thank you. Thanks again for meeting with us. You bet, Wendy. Uh, We'd like to talk a little bit about the infrastructure plan. We've heard that President Biden is going to meet with GOP counterparts today on Capitol Hill and try to work out the differences. Um, We know that there's probably quite a bit of disagreement on how much to spend, but could you Give us a little bit more detail about specifically what are the big disagreements uh, between the parties about the infrastructure plan? Well, the differences are about uh, all about differences that would be about $1,700 billion. Uh, They want a a $2.4 trillion. Remember, a thousand billions is is a trillion. Uh, We actually believe that what the infrastructure bill uh, needs are are the needs of the nation. We believe we have grown. We believe that that these transportation plans that generally are five years in in length uh, gain uh, help across the country where areas of growth are, are seen, where there are bridges or roads that are in dire need, either because of wildfires, uh, hurricanes, uh, or they've simply fallen apart. You remember when the bridge fell in Minneapolis, and we knew, oh, that's an indication that they needed uh, the, the help. So we have, uh, Republicans uh, have always been a part, we consider this a, a bipartisan bill, always have. Uh, and this has uh, found itself to where an infrastructure bill was there to take care of bridges, roads, ports, uh, the infrastructure, rail, uh, and light rail, things that, that take place in this country. We've not always completely agreed on how much or where it would go. For instance, the subways in New York want money, but they provide nothing to the 
federal taxpayer. They really are having trouble struggling on their own. Uh, Amtrak uh, gets about a billion dollars of regular appropriations because they struggle. We get that struggle, and we want to make sure that the transportation of the East Coast and West Coast is safe. And so we've seen these things, by and large, in a bipartisan way. We've also seen in a bipartisan way the opportunity that we have to work together. But there are disagreements, and there are some disagreements about how much money. And, uh, of course, our friends, the Democrats, always want to tax gasoline. That's because they want to harm uh, the the infrastructure of gasoline because they want everybody to run, do use different modes of transportation. So there have been some differences, but by and large, we've been really close on our ability not only to make it happen, but make these regular. Uh, now the president is changing things greatly of this $2.4 trillion that the president's pushing uh, only about six to seven percent would be for infrastructure as we have known it. The rest of it is to rebuild cities uh, and to rebuild what uh, have become dilapidated cities, uh, hollowed out cities. Uh, and and I, I don't argue that that they do need help. The question is whose business is it? And it's not in the federal government's business to build rebuild cities. That's up to cities to do, and they should do that, rise and fall off their own success. After all, the ones that are in the most trouble are the ones that have taxed everything out of existence. They have unions uh, that are more expensive, and and the the world has moved past those experiences, but that's where they want to spend literally the vast 93% on rebuilding these other areas. And I don't see the best interests of the country in doing that at this time. So not only have are there a few people in the president's party, but every single Republican has said they think that's a bad idea. It's also combined with they want to increase taxes. They want to increase taxes on employers. And employers uh, employ people. And this takes away from their ability to give employees wage, wage, wage increases, which is what they're trying to now do is to get everybody more money. But the facts, the case, they want to do it through the government and they don't want it through the employer. So we're trying to keep this idea of free enterprise and uh, us as a capitalist nation alive. And, and of course, as you know, that's the, 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 the struggle and the difference in Washington. So while we may be wanting to get this infrastructure bill done, and I want to be a part of it and have indicated I will be a part of it and have put projects in to be a part of it. Uh, I will not vote for it if it does not reasonably change uh, to where it will be in the best interest of, of taxpayers. Uh, I'd like to move on to um, housing industry. We've got kind of an interesting scenario. And, you know, we work for Habitat for Humanity, so we're interested in people being able to afford a good home, not just our homeowners, but everybody in our community. You and, build too. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you have to pay, you have to pay for things and the price of of not only wood, but wood byproducts uh, and all things have gone up literally eightfold. Right. And we've got a situation where the cost to build going up, but also interest rates are down. 
So it's just putting all kinds of pressure on the housing market and that impacts the ability to build new homes. It could also probably impact your ability to forge your taxes. So kind of what, what's your take on the situation and what do you think, if anything, the federal government should be doing about it? Well, the federal government should be getting the heck out of the way. It is because of the federal government that we have the problems that we've got. Now, as soon as I say that, I am for a balanced relationship. I'm every bit for a balanced relationship. I'm not opposed to our government. But I think that that balance is what will create a moving forward uh, start that will allow us to get back. The pandemic, we're still struggling with. How did it happen? Where did it come from? Okay, now get over it. How are we going to continue to be safe and recover? Well, it's not by keeping people at home. It's not by paying them money to be unemployed. The the federal government is actually encouraging people to be unemployed. And we need people to go back to work. For the free enterprise system to work, for a capitalist nation to work, we have to go to work. We have the greatest workers. We have the best working circumstances. We have the best laws of worker protection. But if the federal government encourages people not to work, to get more money, they should not be surprised that they are incenting things that cause prices to rise. Inflation occurs because the cost of products rise. And the cost of products has risen dramatically since January. It's not because of COVID. It's because of the federal government's use of COVID as a response And so what they're trying to do is to coddle people to stay at home. And that is causing prices because you can't get truck drivers. You can't get people to work in manufacturing plants. You cannot get people to come in poultry operations. And it's not fear. It's encouraging this behavior. CPI increased dramatically. Three weeks ago, Wall Street Journal, front page article, how uh, housing products, uh, transportation, all sorts of things that directly affect us have risen dramatically. Right, right. And we could probably go on and on about this. I know um, at Bryan College Station Habitat, we've seen, for example, lumber go up threefold. So it's it's a really ridiculous situation. Uh, it's something we've never seen since I've been there. Uh, but Uh, For sake of time, I wanted to move to another housing-related issue that I think is really interesting and something that does impact um, Bryan College Station habitat as well as lenders all over the place, and that's the foreclosure and eviction moratoriums. In my lifetime, since I've been in the mortgage industry, I've never seen a moratorium like this. What we mean by that is, is where back starting in March of last year with the pandemic, um, I believe first the, the CDC did, a, did an eviction moratorium, and then most of the federally backed mortgages followed suit with foreclosure prevention uh, moratoriums, meaning you can't foreclose. All of that, as far as I understand it, seems to be that it might go away at the end of June, or at least the eviction part of it. Um, what we um, are interested in is, is all of that debt. Uh, that is kind of piling up for those that are in forbearance, um, have mortgages, and how is that going to affect them going forward once these safeguards end, I guess is what I'm saying. 
Um, so I, I'd like to know if you have any opinions on these moratoriums and uh, what you think is going to happen after June 30th. Thank you. I do have an opinion. And my opinion is the government that said it was OK not to do that should have equally cautioned people. It does not mean you don't owe money. Right. They did not do that. They did not say, please pay to the best of your ability. After all, a good number of people did receive a good amount of money mm-hmm. and they chose not to pay a penny. And I think literacy, literacy is perhaps the most important thing where people learned. And we learned this in the housing market with the crash, the real bubble in 2008 and nine, that you need to pay as best as possible what you can pay with a justification about why you cannot make full payment. And you need to do that, and it would avoid you being evicted. But to pay nothing is irresponsible and against the law. Mm-hmm. And so once again, you were seeing where to get us through a difficult time, the emotions of an administration coming in to save people It's a concrete life preserver. It's a concrete life preserver because they will end up getting further in debt. They will end up losing that asset or the home where they've been a part of. And it might not be exactly the timing, but it's going to happen. And so I am for the government making sure that people do more literacy and understand, please negotiate right now. Please begin that process because we're getting ready to release this. And you need to know you are not protected. Just because you live there and didn't pay, didn't pay your bill doesn't mean you don't have to. So it's, it's irresponsibility on behalf, on behalf of this administration, I believe, to offer help and guidance, but not to offer an excuse. And that's what they think they've given people. And it's, it's, a, it's a sad fall from that. Do you think that uh, the eviction and foreclosure moratoriums will be extended anymore? You know, uh, some of these bills that Congress comes out with, you know, are hundreds and hundreds of pages long. I didn't know if there was any sort of a rider in infrastructure or anything else trying to extend these moratoriums. Have you heard of anything? Well, right now we have some bills that are, as you say, they're ripe to be done, but nothing is getting through the Senate right now. This uh, great big package that the president wants where that language might be uh, in there. And I don't know about it, but it's it's not getting where it needs to get right now. So I think it was done administratively. Much of this was done administratively. Much of it will be reacted to administratively. Got it. Um, And then uh, finally, on kind of a, a different note. Uh, we've been hearing in Bryan College Station uh, rumblings of, of possible shift in the actual congressional um, district, CD17. Um, you know, there's nothing concrete yet because we haven't received the final numbers from the census. Uh, but what's your take going forward as far as Bryan College Station, Brazos County's representation? Uh, is it going to be business as usual, in your opinion, as far as the makeup of the district now where... Uh, you are in Waco, but you're representing all the way down to Bryan College Station. Or are we looking at something different, maybe even where the Brazos Valley has 
essentially two different representatives. Have you heard, have you had any opinions on that? You know, I've I've not heard. I have heard people ask questions. I've, no one has said what they want. Perhaps somebody could and will. Uh, I, I think it's important to note that through the history, there have been different representatives uh, in, in the uh, in the '90s. Uh, the fifth district of Texas came down to uh, Bryan, and I represented Bryan, Texas. Uh, for eight years. And then when the new lines were drawn, a young man named Kevin Brady picked up the rest of Bryan College Station, picked up Bryan in the College Station. Before that, it had been a part of Texas Six, which was Joe Barton. The uh, facts and factors related to this are important, and it really has a lot to do with how a community sees itself. Uh, by and large, what happened is, is that when Mr. Flores was the congressman, before that, there had been a man named Mr. Edwards. And Mr. Edwards had this traditional district of Waco College Station uh, and then went over to Bell County. And Bell County was where Fort Hood was. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the population changes changed that. I think that if I were to guess, I would say that neither college, Brian Brazos County wants to be the, what I would call the tail of a dog. And that is to have the power forever to be down out of a big city where big city needs override college station. It really is a circumstance where McLennan County and Brazos County are about the same size. Now, that's not true. We know McLennan County is a little bit bigger. But in fact, Mr. Flores served for 10 years. He served Avely, Brazos County, Avely, McLennan County. And then there were a lot of things in between. But we also have Travis County to contend with. There are about 100,000 people in Travis County. So if there's going to be a change, I would expect that that change would be along the line of the needs of people in Travis County. Uh, and then I would anticipate that from what I've heard, Brazos County would stay in because otherwise you've got to find 500,000 more people somewhere else. Yeah. Finding 500,000 people that you want to live with and share a congressman with is not as easy as people think it is. So that that's fine. So if we go 250 and 250 right. or 275 and 275 that equal out these counties, right. uh, then they're about the same size. And then we've got to find somewhere else. So the of the uh, 12 counties, uh, that's how we do that. So if there's someone that feels strongly, I'm sure we'll figure it out. I've not heard anything, but it's hard finding where you'd want to fit uh, your what. Once again, I've used the tail of a dog, or the 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 yeah. the uh, the tail is what you would be compared to the whole body. Absolutely. And so I I think you're I think everybody in Waco wants to stay a part of a, of an even balance right. as opposed to having somebody control them. Well, beyond that, um, is there anything you're working on in D.C. right now that 
you're especially excited about, be it bills or anything else, before we uh, conclude today? Yes, and thank you. Uh, th- there, there is uh, this anticipation of the same bill we've been talked about, the infrastructure bill, uh, and certainly other appropriations bills that uh, Brazos County wants to be a huge part in, either by virtue of transportation and infrastructure uh, or by the needs of Texas A&M. Uh, Texas A&M, I haven't added it all up, but it's darn near a billion dollars. Wow worth of what would essentially be earmarks and would be things that uh, as the congressman, I would need to go in and fight for. And uh, it's uh, once again, I'm in the minority. I'm not in the majority, but even if you're in the majority, you know, you got to go ask for things. I will be asking for the money for Texas A&M. I will be asking for the infrastructure money uh, to build out. I was, before I was on with you, I was on with, uh, Bryan College Station Chamber, and uh, they are very much, uh, if you go across the board with uh, the the two mayors and you go to both airports and you go to uh, the economic development, they are interested in continuing because of the growth, because of the needs of, of of the area, but more to be competitive there. They consider themselves to be very competitive in R&D, and then getting jobs and the jobs of tomorrow. So, uh, dadgummit, that's what I'm going to do. The Think Brass's podcast is brought to you by Bryan College Station Habitat for Humanity. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Alexa. We'd love to hear from you and what you think of our content. You can send us an email at thinkbrasses at gmail.com or message us through social media. Thanks for listening. And just remember, think local, think brasses. Think brasses.